Well, I'd like to welcome everybody tonight to the uh, third of the Lionel Robbins Lectures. My name's John Van Rien. I'm a professor here and uh, the director of the Centre for Economic Performance. Um, I'm very delighted to have uh, Nick uh, to conclude uh, his series of fascinating lectures. Um, I'm not going to give him another introduction because he's had other introductions before. Suffice to say, I'm extremely happy to have him as a great colleague here at the school and also to be a fellow commissioner on the uh, LSE Commission for Growth. Uh, I'd like to thank the Lana Robbins family once again for sponsoring these lectures. I'd also like to mention that uh, there is a book, a biography of Lionel Robbins uh, coming out uh, this year from Cambridge University Press by uh, Sue Hansen, and uh, I recommend you go out and uh, grab your copy before they sell out. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Nick, and uh, Nick's turn. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, John, and um, it's, a, as I've emphasised here earlier, and I'm happy to do it again. It's been an absolute delight to come home to the LSE. I did it nearly five years ago now, so I feel I felt at home when I arrived back, and I feel even more at home now. Um, and I'd like to add my thanks again to the um, to the Robbins family. Thank you all very much for coming and sitting uh, right through the three of the uh, of the lectures. And thanks particularly those to you, you know, like if you're on the aeroplane, they thank the frequent flyers. Thank all of you who have come to all three of the lectures um, particularly. Now, the first lecture, I looked at the scale of the risks, starting with the science and saying the science had bowled us a particularly difficult delivery from the point of view of making policy. Uh, it was immense scale, which we're not very good at understanding full of risk and uncertainty, which were even worse at understanding, long lags so that the effects of what we do are not immediately visible, and the publicness, um, the effects depend on the aggregate, not simply on the action of the individual. It makes it about as difficult a policy problem as you can imagine. We're not blaming the science for that. They describe the world as they uh, understand it. But the outcome is a particularly difficult one for policymakers. So I described that story and asked how those um, predictions of the science, those uh, explanations of the science, uh, help us or guide us or should determine the kind of ethics uh, or the kind of ethics that we bring to the table we have to think of big issues about uh, loss of life. We have to think about big issues about the distant future and so on. Those are big ethical challenges. And of course, they shape the kind of economics that we have to bring to bear. With a problem of that scale, I argued that we had to make major cuts in emissions. We had to cut emissions by uh, a factor of at least two and a half to bring it down from something like 50 billion tonnes a year now of CO2 equivalent down to below 20, 40 years from now, and actually on the way below 35, 20 years from now. With modest assumptions about world growth over the coming decades, you might think with good economic policy, I should add, including on climate change, you might think of uh, a growth factor over 40 years of about three, so that cuts emissions per unit of output by three times two and a half, two and a half absolutely, three for the growth. So you're cutting 
emissions pollutant output by a factor of seven or eight, and I argued that that surely should be described as such a major change we ought to be thinking in terms of uh, description as an industrial revolution. And further uh, looking at that perspective, you're going to have to change right across the economy, agriculture, um, transport, buildings, industry, power, and so on. It's not just um, fiddling around with the source of the electrons which appear uh, from somewhere else. It's actually looking, uh, you know, when you flick your switch on, it's actually changing radically the way in which we do things, the way in which we consume, the way in which we produce. So that was the story of the first lecture. The story of the second lecture, so those of you who didn't come to the first lecture just heard it, the, uh, the second lecture I was looking at the specifics of economic policy and arguing that the basic principles of public economics in terms of externalities and market failure combined with an under of the um, James Mead and uh, Pigou, AC Pigou uh, kind, um, together with a Hayekian um, and Schumpeterian approach to economic transition and change were very valuable raw materials that economic science brings to the understanding of these problems. And I reminded ourselves that uh, Lionel Robbins essentially hired James Mead and uh, Friedrich von Hayek, so a lot of this material that we need to handle this problem is homemade here at the LSE as a result of Lionel Robbins' wis wisdom. So that's the kind of uh, analytical tools we have to bring to bear, but I pointed out that it's not just the externality, the market failure associated with climate change and the emissions of greenhouse gases. There are very important issues around research and development with the familiar problems of public goods and the knowledge sphere, but particularly strong where we are in a great hurry and where other people, we all benefit from the innovation, not just the innovator. I spoke about the market failures and the need for public policy associated with networks, be they electricity grids, public transport, recycling networks, or whatever, about the importance of information, about the difficulties in long-term capital markets. These are all absolutely central market failures for uh, these issues. We cannot think of it solely in terms of just getting the price of carbon right, and then the wonders of the market will sort everything out. Those other, those other market failures, externalities that I'm referring to, are not small, and they're central to the policy aspects of um, these problems. But essentially, after laying that out and looking at what was going on around the world, understanding the form of the Industrial Revolution that we had to uh, embark on, I gave an optimistic story in a very particular sense of an optimistic story. We know the scale of the action that we need to take. We can see the sectors and technologies where we have to act. We can see technologies coming through, and we can see that learning process moving quickly. We can see the kinds of economic policies we need to bring to bear, and we'll learn like mad along the way. This is a story of discovery and learning. So it's an optimistic picture in terms of what we can do to reduce the risks that we face, and that that route of the transition to low-carbon economy is rather an attractive one. So that's an optimistic story. What I want to try to explore this time round is just why it's so difficult to get there. And I'm not optimistic, 
about whether we will do what I think we can understand that we can do, when that what we can do is really rather attractive. The question is, will we get there? So in order to understand that, you've got to look at some of the difficulties associated with making policy. It's not just us policy wonks working it all out and letting you know. Um, the making of policy is actually a bit more complicated than that. Again, something that Lionel Robbins, who's deeply involved in the making of, the policy, of policy, understood uh, extremely well. So that's the agenda for, uh, for today. Why is it all so difficult? Then I'll talk a little bit about the international negotiations. For my sins, I've been to the last six uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, meetings. I won't go back over what's going on around the world, but I'll reflect briefly on why what's going on around the world is happening in the way it is. I will argue, and this is something for the Growth Commission, but some of my colleagues are working on it very intensively and I think persuasively, why the low carbon growth is the best way out of uh, the recovery that we face. And then I'll reflect a little bit and I promise to try to stop latest by 8.30 so we get at least half hour of uh, questions uh, this time. So uh, you can start asking questions at 8.30 whether or not I've finished. That's a constraint that I... 7.30 I hope, Nick, actually. Oh, 7.30, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about thousands of years here. I mean, you know, an hour here and an hour there. Um, so that's, I've given you the introduction. We do understand how to get started along this very exciting route. And I think we see already that we'll learn like mad along, uh, along the way. But... Whilst that story, that part of the story is optimistic, we can't be optimistic that we'll get there, and that's the challenge that I want to, uh, I want to look at. So why is it all so difficult? Well, I've already started with the nature of the problem um, fed to us by the science. Scale, risk, lags, publicness, all that makes it um, very difficult. This kind of scale that we're dealing with, people find it very difficult to uh, understand. I mean, people do, I think, understand issues um, around speed limits and danger and drink and driving and danger. And you can point to the experience and you can explain and you can produce the current data. But it's very difficult to understand risks of um, hundreds of millions of people having to move because their uh, environment has been destroyed and their lives and livelihoods are being undermined, which could occur 50, 60, 100, 120 years from now. It's quite difficult to get your head around those issues. And uh, the risks associated with that and the kind of probabilities that we're talking about um, are again things which people find it difficult to understand. So that's just underlining why it's so difficult to converse on all this. And I do underline it because it runs right through the whole uh, story that um, I've been uh, trying to tell. This is difficult because we're talking about radical change. People find it more difficult to make incremental change uh, than they do radical change. You can make radical change if the perceived pressures are clear and immediate and strong enough. And if you look at the way in which, say, the UK economy radically changed during wartime, people saw the danger and they, we went over to a system of essentially a directed labour markets and national planning. And people accepted it 
they didn't just accept it grumpily, they accepted it with goodwill because they, shared, uh, they had a shared understanding of the common threat. And you actually saw in many cases stress levels go down during the war because people saw that common interest and the acting together was something positive. I'm absolutely not arguing in favour of wars to bringing about this kind of changing behaviour. But you can change radically. People do change radically. But it is seeing an immediate uh, tangible threat. And this is actually a bigger threat than most of the wars were. Actually, it's a bigger threat without qualification of the wars that uh, we have experienced. But it isn't something you can touch uh, very... Uh, very easily. So this is about radical change, but it's difficult to get the radical change because people aren't experiencing in an immediate sense the arguments for that radical change. There will be major investment. This costs. Now, the costs, I've argued, are very manageable in relation to the scale of the problem. We have to invest around a couple of percent more of uh, GDP we have to increase uh, investment by 10-15% depending on what the scale of investment is. That's perfectly possible. Um, but it's not small and people will react to those kinds of um, uh, challenges. Is it me or you or somebody else that's causing the flickering uh, here? Is there somebody from IT who could see if they can fix the projector? It doesn't worry me. I'll keep talking, but uh, it may give you sort of uh, headaches or attacks of some sort. So um, I hope it's just like the, the warning at the beginning of the news. Some of this will involve flash photography. Um, so the big investment that we have to make, which is perfectly manageable, in, uh, in my view, is ne nevertheless seen as big. In, uh, there will be some increase in power prices. Not huge, maybe 10, 15, 20 percent. Nothing that's unmanageable and nothing that's actually bigger than what we've seen recently with changes in the prices of hydrocarbons. But these changes are big enough that people notice and, of course, uh, you'd expect radical change to be noticeable. But it does, it wouldn't be radical if it wasn't noticeable. And the those changes are uh, likely to involve pushback, and they do involve um, pushback. You have vested interests. Uh, some uh, uh, industries will change. Uh, now, we, we already got rid of our coal mining industry to a large extent 20-some um, uh, years ago or a bit more. But there will be industries around, industries around the world which are disrupted as a result of this. In fact, if they're not disrupted, if that dislocation doesn't occur, we're not doing our job. We're supposed to be switching away from um, hydrocarbons. So these are the kinds of reasons why you would expect opposition and um, reservation. And of course, there are vested interests involved. Can you come and have a fiddle with this? Sir? Yeah, I've spoken to some people under and Okay. Right. AV's on its way, don't worry. <laughs> okay, thank you. So that's why you expect some kind of, uh, you do expect a great deal of opposition, and of course you see it. I also think that uh, the kind of self-centeredness of um, economic modelling and public discussion of the 80s and 90s 
that we saw uh, in economics and in politics has actually undermined over time our ability to move together and do collective action. If you're told that uh, there's no such thing as society and public servants just have their nose in the public trough, then it doesn't do a lot for uh, people putting their arms together and uh, working, as it were, collectively as some part of this has to be, to make things happen. And I think the economics departments of the world didn't help very much either when they started behaving like the people in their models and um, started confusing the assumptions of their models with statements about the ultimate state of humankind. Um, so I do think we have to discuss what kinds of behaviour, and I did discuss that last time, what kinds of behaviour we're going to talk about, and how it is that people change their values and make their, change their judgments through public discussion. And I think that's a piece of uh, moral philosophy that goes back at least to John Stuart Mill. I think Amartya Sen would take us back to Ashoka also for those kinds of public discussion. I do think that's a vital part of, um, of this whole um, process. And of course you've got misinformation. You have merchants of doubt. And uh, that is something which affects the story as well. I'll come back briefly to that. I'm not going to obsess about that. But I'll come back briefly uh, to that. So that's why it's difficult in terms of discussion. It's difficult internationally because you've got 200 or so countries involved. You do have issues of free riding when you've got problems of um, public uh, goods. And you do have issues of international enforcement of public policy. You can enforce, public, you can enforce policy um, in a nation much more easily. It doesn't mean easily, but you can enforce it in a nation much more easily than you can enforce it internationally. Your mechanisms of enforcement are much more limited. So um, in an international, from the international point of view, those issues of numbers, free riding and enforcement do matter and they make the international making of policy rather difficult. But there I think again you see strands of optimism because people, uh, sorry, countries around the world do behave like responsible countries. I mean, we do have in the UK our Climate Change Committee. One of Sam Pankhauser here is a member of the Climate Change Committee. And we do have climate change legislation and we do have objectives, even though those objectives are not necessarily forced on us by international agreement. As I argued last time, Ethiopia and Rwanda are making very strong strides, not because they're bound by international agreement, but because they think it's the right thing to do and they actually rather they see the attractions of the alternative pattern of growth. So when we think of the free riding problem, actually, I think economists have been much too pessimistic. People do behave in responsible ways, particularly when the responsible behaviour actually is also attractive behaviour in terms of the route to the uh, low carbon economy. I have a feeling it's getting worse, don't you? <laughs> what should we do, turn it off and start again? I think it would be a good idea. I can keep talking. We can. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> so let me let me continue uh, from here whilst uh, rescue is being implemented. Um, so I've pointed to the difficulties, um, which are real difficulties, of uh, political economy 
um, and economic theory and behavior uh, nationally and internationally. Um, they can be overcome, but they do require a powerful argument, uh, much better communication, and strong leadership. Now, this is, I've spoken about international agreement. I'm not going to dwell on these uh, uh, meetings. I've been to everyone since 2006 in uh, Nairobi. You come back uh, knackered and often a bit depressed, but uh, there has been movement. In Bali, the roadmap to Copenhagen, saying we're going to try and get an agreement in Copenhagen, was set. In Copenhagen, well, you it was cold, chaotic, and quarrelsome, but you did get the Copenhagen Accord, which importantly set uh, the idea of countries taking on targets, whether they be uh, rich countries or uh, developing countries. And those targets which came in after Copenhagen did actually come in. They were taken into the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Agreements uh, in Cancun. And in Durban, there was a uh, so-called platform for um, uh, moving forward, which I'll talk about in just a moment. And there was an agreement that the next uh, meeting would be in Qatar. Um, you might reflect on that with as much puzzlement as uh, those of us who saw um, Russia and Qatar selected for the World Cup. Um, I should Transparency requires me to reveal that I was on the uh, UK's uh, 2018 bid committee for the, uh, getting um, the World Cup to the UK, but we didn't do very well. Not my fault. I was on the uh, green side of it, showing how green our, uh, our, our bid would have been had it been successful. <laughs> now, in Durban, um, there was uh, a number of important steps forward. No leap forward, but a number of important steps forward. There was clear recognition, as I've argued last time, and I'll mention it again, of the gap between the commitments that were made in Copenhagen and Cancun and the kind of cuts that we have to make to give ourselves at least a 50-50 chance of two degrees centigrade. Those commitments to cut, or those agreements to cut, are very important and much better than business as usual, but they don't come anywhere near what we need for a 50% chance of two degrees. And that gap was actually recognized in uh, Durban, which is of value. Uh, there was progress towards a green, green climate fund, but no pro progress towards funding the green climate fund. The, there was, I think, important movement in transparency, understanding what other people are doing, and understanding what other people are doing is an extremely important part of all this, and um, bringing some uh, market flows into forestry was also, and I think that is a step forward, that came about as well. And there were other issues around uh, widening the um, clean development mechanism and so on. And the Kyoto Protocol, even though it involves really only Europe now, uh, was uh, extended. So given that it could have been a complete disaster, it was a modest, uh, a modest, step, um, modest step forward, but not a leap forward in any sense. But the change that said, essentially, we have to move towards an agreement which involves everybody coming together and taking on the same kind of commitment was, I think, of real value in removing at least some of the political obstacles in rich countries. Because some rich countries' politicians would say, well, we've got so-called binding commitments, other people have voluntary commitments, they always refer to China, and uh, this is uh, asymmetric, it's unfair. 
Now, that was actually a pretty spurious objection because China's commitment, which is still notionally voluntary, is now embodied in China's 12th five-year plan, plan, and any serious student of Chinese economic history knows that they usually deliver on their plans. So even though it's voluntary, it's actually far more credible than, um, than uh, Canada's allegedly legally binding agreement, which at least they did the honest thing and said, well, we're not interested anymore, and they walked away from it shortly after uh, Durban. But the idea of credibility is fundamental, and it's something I'll come back to. And it's not the same thing as legally uh, binding. Uh, this is just another illustration. This one's from Project Catalyst of um, how the path that we need to go on, which is the bottom path here, which comes down to about 44 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent in 2020, is way below the uh, Copenhagen-Cancun paths, which are in that sort of green uh, area there. And they look much more like 3 and 4 degree centigrade paths than 2 degree centigrade paths. I mean, a lot better than the, anything like business as usual, which is the top path uh, there. So that gap was at least um, recognized. So I do think that this uh, process is of value, but it's a process that's moving grindingly slowly and not on a big enough scale. There are some people who've um, reflected on that and said, well, let's just rely on bottom-up, just, just rely on voluntary commitments from countries. That, I think, is a profound mistake. The um, movement from cities and countries depends very strongly on where people think the overall international discussions are going. People invest because they have some confidence in anticipating where those movements are going. A bottom-up would be an even slower process, and the science is telling us very loudly that we're already uh, moving uh, too slowly. So that whole story of um, what shapes the bottom-up, well, a number of things shape the bottom-up, the country level, the city level, the firm decisions, but one of them is the way the international agreements are moving. And the people are much more ready to take on international agreements if they see successful change at the firm, city, and uh, the nation level. So there's an intimate relationship between the top down and the bottom up. And I think it's just daft to say we can get by with one or we get by with the other. Or nothing's going to happen till the whole top down agreement is all tied up. And that's clearly uh, factually false. A lot of things are happening before it's fully tied up. So I think the top down, bottom up process, they feed off each other causation both ways, and I think that's a vital part of the story. But what we have to do, and this is uh, what I'll be um, reflecting on over this lecture, is how to accelerate that process, how to move um, more quickly. But you so certainly don't do that by abandoning the top down. I don't think the language of legally binding is one which ought to um, overly preoccupy us. The thing that really matters is mutual confidence in where others are going. If you've got an idea where others are going, you've got the confidence to invest in markets if they're moving in a strong direction. That's the confidence that you're looking for. It's about, in the main, investor confidence and it's about political confidence in order to convince people in any one country um, to move forward. I've lectured, as, as you can imagine, on climate change in many different countries. And most places you go say, well, I'm honest and sincere, but all the other countries in the world will cheat. And the same is, statement is made whichever country you go to. <laughs> it's of vital importance that 
we as a world understand where other people are going. It's of course obvious in so many areas, but it's particularly important in climate change because the confidence to move forward in the UK and the US would be increased if people understood something about China's 12th five-year plan. Now the good folk of um, Peoria in the Midwest or um, I don't know what country I should choose. Let's, let's just choose Lyon rather than a country in the uh, UK. Um, the people in the middle of the countries that uh, you might think of as being interested are not avid readers of the 12th five-year plan. It is in China, it is important that people through the universities, through communications, through the school teaching, through the media, understand what's going on in other parts of the world. It's that kind of mutual confidence which will help us move forward. So education in the international university like the LSE, for example, is a very important part of um, this story. Now let me move to the third part of uh, what I want to say. What's going on around the world? Now a lot of my lecture yesterday was about that. I'm not going to repeat it. But I do want to, in rather a general sense, think about why we're seeing the kind of movements we're seeing in different parts of the, uh, in different parts of the world. The, um, the developing world, as I've said, has changed more radically over this last three or four years in its approach to these issues than the rich world. I gave the examples of um, China, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Colombia, and so on. Um, I could have gone on. There are many more examples like that. We're not seeing any more the statement saying, you rich country guys caused this uh, problem. Um, you've got to help us. You've got to help us with technology and financial support, and nothing doing until we see the color of your money. And of course, they don't see the color of the money. That argument has fallen uh, in prominence. It's not gone away, but it's fallen in prominence. And I was very struck when I was on a panel on the Africa Day at Durban, which actually is very impressive with the way in which different countries in Africa laid out the way in which they're moving forward. When the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Melo Sanawi, and said it's not equity or justice for Africa to foul the planet just because others have fouled the planet in the past. And that was a big change from the kind of statements that uh, you uh, used to hear and still hear. Now the resentment at the rich countries filling up the atmosphere is totally understandable and it's deeply inequitable that we are where we are. And I've emphasized that a number of times in the lectures so far. But that deep sense of inequity which should be driving support from the rich country and strong action in the rich country, cannot by itself deliver. There's no way that the arithmetic adds up if you um, uh, stand back and say developing countries shouldn't do much until the rich countries have done a great deal. The path that the developing countries are now on in the Ca Copenhagen Cancun uh, numbers looks to be well above in 2030 the total budget for the world. Total budget for the world in 2030 on a two-degree path is probably 32 or 33 uh, uh, billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent. If you um, forecast where the Copenhagen-Cancun agreements go for the developing countries alone, it's probably in the high 30s. So it, this simply couldn't add up 
if the developing countries don't move strongly now. And it seems to me that the equity part of the story is about putting the fight against poverty, rapid growth in the developing world, and the managing of climate change and reducing the emissions together. And it's looking at it in that way, how we foster and encourage that transition to green growth is the right way to look at the problems of uh, inequity. Just to negotiate in a narrow way over the carbon space is not going to get us uh, very, uh, very far. But you have seen a, a radical change in the developing world, just getting on and taking on their own responsibility. And it's actually rather cheerful to see relative to the kinds of discussions that you uh, sometimes get in the uh, rich world. Now, what's, how do we understand what's, being happened, what's been happening in the rich world? Well, Barack Obama was elected in 2008, and in early November, in his uh, victory speech at Grant Park, he spoke of a planet in peril, and he had introduced Alice Nixon Cooper, who was, a th I think, 106 at the time, and asked what kind of planet his uh, daughters would see if they lived as long at, um, as Alice Nixon Cooper. And I was just finishing my book, The Blueprint for the... Uh, a blueprint for a safer planet, and I called the last chapter a planet in peril after the words that uh, Obama had used in his speech. Well, we've seen the way the politics of the US has moved on this in the uh, subsequent uh, years, and it's not been uh, very optimistic. The developed world has pointed to the developing world and seems to have criticized it for growing, uh, and thus uh, emitting more because it's growing. But it has changed the politics. The weakness of the Copenhagen meeting was something that was worrying. There has been a constant attack uh, on, uh, on the science. There are worries um, from uh, the political side of people who seem to think that uh, the, um, the red planners are coming back in green hats and this is more uh, government interference. They don't understand the basic idea that to correct a market failure is actually uh, very strongly pro-market. Uh, leaving a market failure, leaving a distortion is the anti-market uh, story. So the teaching of um, Pigou and Mead has not been universally pervasive in understanding this problem and the understanding of, uh, of, from Hayek and Schumpeter on innovation and discovery has not been prominent either. And of course the financial and economic crisis has diverted uh, political attention. I'll come back to that in just a moment. So I think understanding the way in which these big movements have taken place, I'm not rehearsing the movements themselves again, is an important part of uh, what we have to look at if we are to gain some uh, understanding of how to overcome these difficulties. So. Um, Let's now move to the penultimate part of what I have to say. Now, one way I think I th we can move this story forward very strongly is to look at the uh, opportunities in the low-carbon approach to recovery. In the rich world, where the issues of recovery arise most strongly, in the rich world, we've got unemployed resources, we've got lots of liquidity and savings in the hands of uh, private companies and we've got very low long-term interest rates and we're in search 
of a growth story. At the same time, of course, we've got the challenge of this radical transformation to the low-carbon economy if we're to handle the problems of the medium and long term. If you put those elements together, I think it, in the John Cleese, John Cleese category of blinding the obvious, that we should be making policy which can induce the kind of investment that we need in order to lay the foundations for this low-carbon recovery. Some of my colleagues uh, here at the LSE are working away on that. Dimitri Zengelis, is Dimitri here? Or? Oh yeah, he is here. Dimitri Zengelis is, is producing good stuff on this story. Dimitri and I are going off to Her Majesty's Treasury in a couple of weeks' time before the budget to explain to them the attractiveness uh, of our view, and no doubt they will be instantly convinced. Um, <laughs> I used to work, uh, I was three and a half years, actually rather cheerful years in the Treasury, and uh, Dimitri was there even longer. He ran the uh, Treasury uh, macro model. So between us, I think we know more economics than most of them. And we will do our best, because there'll be an attentive and responsive audience. We will do our best to explain the advantages of uh, this approach to recovery. And we'll let you know, uh, well, <laughs> listen to the budget speech and you'll find out uh, a little bit about how we got on. But I do think the argument is very powerful. When you've got unemployed resources, when you've got low interest rates, when you've got that liquidity, now is the moment to lay the foundations of what will have to be the growth story of the future if we're to avoid the extreme risks of climate change. And that, I think, is uh, of um, fundamental importance. Let me show you the kind of uh, numbers that governments are willing to throw at problems if they see them uh, as precipices uh, over which they're about to tumble. Uh, these are um, from Idea Global, these numbers on the uh, guarantees that governments around the world have uh, offered. Uh, the US, uh, um, well over approaching, well over five trillion approaching. Uh, approaching six trillion and you've got huge numbers, um, very large fractions of um, GDP uh, offered in, ter in terms of guarantees for banks. If you offer a tiny fraction of those guarantees in association with the kind of investments we're talking about, you could make a very big difference. And if you couple that with credible policies, you really could start to generate the kind of uh, responses that uh, are necessary. We're just talking about 2% of world GDP in terms of extra investment here. It's not small, but uh, we have seen, I gave the example of the war before and I'm giving the example now, the kinds of monies people are prepared to throw at the financial institutions. When people see disaster as looming, they're prepared to act. It is looming, but it's difficult for people to uh, see that and that's why we have to get much better at explaining uh, ourselves. So let me draw my remarks to a close. Um, I've got about 14 minutes if uh, I stick with my 7.30. We have to get much better. I want to look at the prospects and what we do to change those prospects. We have to do much better at getting our arguments across. We have to be much better at explaining to people the magnitude of the risks that we face. They really are, uh, if you look over a century or so, they're existential risks. And we have to look to our science friends to do that. 
I tell stories, I think they're soundly based, indeed they, I believe they are from the data which we have, of 3 degrees centigrade as a temperature we've not seen on this planet for around 3 million years or so, and 5 degrees centigrade as a temperature we haven't seen for 30 million years. At those kinds of temperatures, most of the ice and snow starts to, uh, starts to go, certainly at 5 degrees uh, centigrade. The reasons why we live where we live are radically redrawn. We live where we live because of the ports, the rivers, uh, the, uh, the sea, where the seashores sea are. If you disrupt the North Indian monsoon, and as I mentioned, I just got back from Bihar last week, one of the densest populated parts of the world, if you redraw the North Indian monsoon, if you redraw the way the waters come off the Himalayas, you recast where hundreds of millions, indeed billions of people, can live. This is the scale of the risk. Now, I do talk to my scientific friends a lot, and um, Brian Hoskins, the head of Grantham Imperial, is here, and he's heard me, heard me say this kind of thing before. We look to our scientific friends to get even better at explaining the kind of risks that we run. Because the social scientists can do their best, but they're, they're consumers of the science, they're not creators of the science. So that story of the risks has to be told as best um, we can. We have to tell much better the story of the excitement of the new industrial revolution, of the attractions of the learning processes, how it's cleaner, quieter, uh, safer, more biodiverse. But what we mustn't do in telling that process is to explain, is to suggest that everything is win-win-win. We have to invest on a big scale above not a huge scale, but a big scale, ten, increase investment by 10-15% in order to um, start to move towards the kind of economy that we're talking about. And we have to get much better at that. We have to make poverty, managing uh, climate change and overcoming world poverty absolutely central to our story. This is a story of deep injustice. This is a story of... Um, the two defining challenges of our century being intertwined, managing, poverty, managing climate change and overcoming poverty. And we have to make sure that uh, the uh, characterization of what we have to do is set strongly in that sense. Otherwise, we'll never build the kind of international coalition that we have to build in order to manage climate change. And I've already emphasized the potential for the low carbon recovery. These, after laying out the risks, these are the positive stories we have to tell, but not being blind to the kind of investment and radical change that we have to make. We have to deal with the merchants of doubt. Now, who should deal with the merchants of doubt? Because the merchants of doubt are mostly attacking the science. I think we have to look after ourselves with the attacks on the economics, and I think we can. And I would try to set it out in the way I have set it out. But the attacks on the science are real and strong. And I've mentioned Naomi Oreskes and Conway's book, um, Merchants of Doubt. There's another very good book called Doubt is Their Product by David Michaels, Oxford University Press, 2008, where he sets out the way in which vested interests have attacked the science in the past. And he takes his title from an internal memo in the tobacco industry of 1969. That internal memo read, doubt is our product since it is the best means of competing with the body of fact that exists in the minds of the general public. 
it is also the means of establishing controversy. Now, David Michaels, not surprisingly, thought that was a good title for his book, so he called it Doubt is uh, Their Product. Uh, this is a very serious uh, issue. I'm not sure that we as social scientists have huge amounts to contribute to it, but we have to think about communication, psychology, evidence. That is part of our remit. We can't take on the science directly because we are not scientists, but we can think about the processes of political economy that make this kind of thing work, and I do think that that is part of our duty if we're to effect uh, the kind of change that we have been describing as necessary. We can handle as economists the idea that somehow correcting market distortions is anti-market and interference. That's easy to deal with. That's just nonsense. That's just not understanding market economics. It's never reading James Mead or Pigger, Economics of Welfare. That's our duty to deal with that. We can explain what Hayek and Schumpeter uh, said and describe their stories of discovery and innovation and relate those to what we're starting to see. That's our job too. It's absolutely not true, as a certain gentleman said to the Tory party conference, that we don't save the planet by putting the UK out of business. Um, you bring the evidence on uh, where, what environmental regulation, how that influences movement and choice of location. I went over that last time. We can handle the story in theory in terms of market imperfection and the evidence of uh, the effects of environment, environmental regulation. That's our job, to deal with the uh, uh, economic parts of the story. But I do think we have to reflect also on the communication, psychology, evidential part of the story and the attacks on the science, although it will have to be the scientists themselves that deal with that. I thought the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Nina Fedorov, in her outgoing statement uh, a week or two ago, set out the challenges to the scientists in uh, a very clear and strong way. So, Brian, we'll do our best to help you, but it's, uh, it's you guys that have got a sort of big part of, um, of that out. So, let me move to the last part of what I want to uh, say. As I mentioned, these slides go up on uh, the web. There's something between slides and uh, the first draft of the book, um, but I hope they're more or less uh, self-explanatory, and I think all of them should be uh, up um, by now. So I have been optimistic about what can be done, but during this lecture, I've raised real questions about whether it will be done and how we can play our role as social scientists, as, anal as analysts, in participating in that uh, conversation. Um, Thomas Edison, you know, the great light bulb man, who also actually worked on car batteries uh, for electric cars, um, who died in 1931, he was in conversation with Henry Ford and Harry Farstone of uh, Cars and Tires uh, shortly before he died. And uh, you've got the quote there, but I'll read it to you because I like it. We are like tenant farmers chopping down the fence around our home for fuel when we should be using nature's inexhaustible sources of energy, sun, wind and tide. I'd put my money on the sun and solar energy. What a source of power. I hope we don't have to wait until oil and coal run out before we tackle that. He was a smart man, Thomas, uh, <laughs> and pretty prescient. Uh, so there are stories that you can tell that uh, are positive, and I've tried to tell them. But I'm not um, naive and starry-eyed about the difficulties of bringing these uh, about. 
The science is telling us that the problems, each time it's telling us the problems look more worrying than they th we thought they did. Emissions have gone up from about 44 or so billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent when we published the Stern Review to something like 49 or 50 now in that, the space of that uh, six or seven years. We're not bringing them down, they're going up. So the science tells us it's ever more worrying and the pace of action is slow. As I said, we can deal with the bad economics and uh, if Lionel Robbins was with us now, he'd be leading the charge. He was a great fan of Mead and Hayek and indeed he hired them both and those are the two parts of the story which are particularly strong, I think, from uh, our subject. But optimism about what can be done is not the same as uh, optimism about what will be done. We have our role as analysts and communicators uh, to play in that, and I do think that Lionel Robbins himself would have played a very powerful role. Um, Lionel Robbins disagreed with Keynes about uh, protectionism, and uh, I'd have been with Lionel Robbins. Um, he disagreed with Keynes about wages and effective demand, and I'd have been with Keynes. But I think on uh, this subject, given his strong interest in the whole idea of market failure and his strong interest in the Austrian theories of discovery and markets, I think Lionel Robbins would have been at the heart of this story. Now I'm a professor of economics so you've got to conclude with topics for research. That's our job. Um, if you look at them I think they're extraordinarily rich and exciting. There's nothing that's more interesting uh, and challenging and full of difficult economics than this subject. You've got innovations and uh, industrial revolutions. You've got the complex relationships between climate change and sustainability. For me, as I answered the question last night, if I was a research student, again, I'd be looking at dynamic public, public economics for fostering change. I'd be particularly interested, for example, in the power of the, exam in the, power of the example and how that works. Some of you may remember um, Bill Clinton's uh, speech at the uh, Democratic Convention in Denver that nominated Barack Obama. He said it's time that people saw the power of our example rather than the example of our power. And making the power of the example work is of absolutely fundamental importance. That's one reason why development banks, I think, uh, really matter, because they can get behind and show examples. And I'm on the, as I mentioned before, on the advisory board of the Green Investment Bank. That's the kind of thing that they should be doing, helping good examples come into existence. The whole theory of the dynamic public economics for fostering change, not just shifting from one equilibrium to another, is of fundamental importance. I've underlined the political economy of vested interests. We have to understand better how that works. Deep questions in moral philosophy which overlap very strongly with the way in which we frame economics about how we model and think about great risks and uh, collective action. This process of radical change will involve both inequality and opportunity and we have to understand how to put those together. I've emphasised also how mutual confidence matters. How do you generate in international political economy mutual confidence? Those, I could have gone on, but those are some of the research issues that would, uh, I would like to take on if I was a research student again. And um, since we still do research, even at my advanced age, uh, some of the issues that I'll be working on in the next uh, five or ten years, um, should I live so long. The subjects that are involved here are the whole range 
of the social sciences. Just think about the issues I've raised. It's economics, philosophy, politics, finance, economic development, international relations, geography, economic history, sociology, communications, maths, computer science, the subjects we do here at the LSE, all interwoven in the research agenda that uh, I've been uh, describing. And of course, science and technology, absolutely fundamental to finding the way forward. And this is an area where we social scientists and the scientists can and must collaborate and why I'm so cheerful that we have a Grantham Institute of Climate Change and Environment here at the LSE and there's a corresponding one at uh, Imperial. Collaborating with science, scientists and technologists is really fun. But this is an area where we can't say, well, that's an interesting question. The research program will take five years. I'll let you know at the end and then I'll come back for another research grant. This is a story where we have to act and learn as we go. And that's another deeply fascinating part of policy. Uh, and one which, when you're involved in making public policy in the Treasury or in the World Bank elsewhere, you really have to grapple with. Given what, now, given what we now think we understand, what do we suggest we should now do? We have to, as social scientists, respond to that sort of question, whilst at the same time, we uh, get our nose in the research as well. And of all areas, given the pressure of time, this is something where we have to advise now on the making of policy and get involved in re serious research about how to do exactly that. Thank you very much. Well, thanks once again, Nick, for an uh, extremely stimulating lecture. I have to, I have to say that um, after hearing Nick speak once at the Treasury, it kind of uh, inspired me to start working a bit on uh, climate change-related innovations. So uh, it does have an effect. <laughs> um, we have plenty of time for questions. So uh, if you'd like to uh, put your hand up or to uh, make it clear you want to ask questions, roving mic. Um, gentleman here, and could uh, could you announce who you are uh, before you uh, ask your question? That would be very helpful. So, first of all, Robert Wade, um, that was a fascinating lecture. I wanted to um, take you into the governance um, aspects and ask specifically whether you think that the G20, which claims to be the global steering committee in the whole economic and financial domain, has the G20 been an effective um, legitimizer and stimulator of the kind of agenda that you are promoting. Okay, so you want to take a few. Okay, so we'll uh, we'll we'll bundle the questions a little bit. So, uh, the gentleman here in the stripy shirt, uh, Guy Ricard from the Carbon Trust. Um, I've got a question about feeding from where? Sorry, from the Carbon Trust. Oh, okay. um, I've got a question about feed-in tariffs in the UK as an example uh, of policy. So. Recently, the feed-in tariffs have been reduced, which means that for businesses thinking about renewable energy, actually the payback periods get longer and they may well not reach the hurdle rates for investment. So that seems a challenge to me in terms of broadening out the, the deployment of this. Just interested to hear your thoughts. There's a question here. Yeah. It's kind of related to that question. Sorry, John McGurran. It's kind of related to that question. Uh, I wonder, do you, do you think that the, the short-termist nature of much of what is 
what we now regard as the modern Anglo-Saxon model of capitalism is, is a big part of this problem in that it, it militates against the, the long-term investment decisions that are necessary for the, the industrial revolution that you've envisaged. And if that is the case, what can we, what can we do to try and change that mindset? Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Robert, uh, the G20 was um, quite effective for about two meetings. Um, there was the uh, meeting in Pittsburgh at the end of 2008 and the meeting in the spring in London in 2009 where the um, combined action on expanding demand in the face of the potential collapse in demand after Lehman's was, I think, uh, uh, impressive and of value. But it really hasn't done very much since then. Um, I've been to one or two of, of these things and uh, that heady optimism about how the G20 could replace the G8 in getting things done is, I think, fading. I don't say that with any... Uh, <laughs> enthusiasm or cheerfulness but I'm, I would be a bit cautious about expecting too much of it. I do think nevertheless that if we're talking about major financial issues that uh, we have to look and issues of economic policy we have to look to the finance ministers. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change are mostly environment and um, uh, climate change ministers in some shape or form. Um, this is much too big a problem to be left to environment ministers. So the question you raise is an important one. I wish I could be a bit more optimistic uh, in my answers, but I, it's the only G20 we've got, and uh, we should try to uh, make the best of it. But it is going to need uh, stronger leadership. Al Gore tells me that once Barack Obama is re-elected, which he says is a certainty, he will embark in his second phase much more strongly on climate policies. Um, he's a lovely guy to be with. The, um, it's possible that we'll get a stronger leadership. The Angela Merkel of 2007, who uh, was very good and strong on this year in, in taking Europe forward to its 20% uh, targets, it's possible that will get the kind of leadership we need uh, in the G20 when things calm down a bit. I'd like to think so, and I think that's what we should uh, push for. But it's going to need, as well as all the arguments that we assemble in our universities, it's going to need political leaders who are prepared to uh, put uh, their um, political survival on the line on uh, this issue. And I hope that we get political leaders of that kind. It's our job to try to bring about public discussion to make that more likely. Carbon Trust, I spoke yesterday about uh, the vital importance of the credibility of policy. I alluded it briefly again today. It is fundamental. That doesn't mean that policy can't change. For policy to be credible, it means the rules of change have to be understood and articulated in advance. And that, I think, is very important. And to take out feed-in tariffs on the grounds that, that people like them and they've worked very well doesn't seem to me to be a very good argument. If feed-in tariffs 
do stimulate the kind of scale of investment we're talking about, if you do see the kind of falling cost associated with experience, dramatic in solar, still quite strong in wind, then over time you should be adjusting your uh, prices to take that success and the reduction of cost into account because the point of the feed-in tariff is to get the investment that brings the learning, that actually brings down the cost. So there should be mechanisms for revision. But what you want is clearly articulated long-term policies where those mechanisms of revision are part of the story. That's what you do in the regulation of infrastructure. You set out the rules. And that's what we need to do. And jumping about and making it up on the hoof is actually, I think, damaging. So we, we have to recognize the potential and the importance of change as the reality changes, indeed, as the success brings it about. But we have to make that as predictable as we can. It's very nice to see you, John. That was one of my students of about 30, a bit more than 30 years ago, wasn't it? Uh, so life, uh, life takes us forward. Um, the short-termism of policy making, um, that is uh, a challenge. I did quote um, Barack, Barack Obama in Grant Park uh, in early November of uh, 2008, and he was trying to take a 100-year view. The Angela Merkel of 2007 was trying to take a, uh, a long-period view. To be fair to Tony Blair, one should try, is... Um, he chose the subject of climate change for his, for his G8 summit in uh, 2005, which actually spawned the Stern Review. Um, it was only Jacques Chirac that took it seriously at the time, by the way. It's a measure of progress that it is much more serious in politics now than uh, it used to be. Uh, George W. and Silvio Berlusconi were glazed eyes and didn't say anything and took no interest at all in, uh, in Glen Eagles. So you do see that kind of um, political commitment sometimes. China is taking the long-term view. The election process is a little more predictable, but China is taking the uh, long-term view. So, uh, as I described, many African countries. You're right, it's a problem. I think the only way in which you can overcome that problem is by intensifying public discussion, intensifying public uh, commitment, and uh, hope that the right kind of leaders uh, will emerge. It's quite impressive in the UK that the main political parties um, are aligned on this. When the coalition government was being put together here in the UK, it was always in the top two or three articles, areas where there was a platform for um, Agreement. Indeed, we have another one of my former students, Liberal Democrat peer here, uh, Dick Newby, um, involved in those uh, discussions. It is possible to get there, so I don't despair, but it's our job as academics and communicators to try to make the public awareness of these issues of a kind that it can become a stronger part in uh, political debate. I can't do better than that. I may not cheer you up all that much. But. Lady down here on the left. Hi, my name is Kiran Pereira. I'm um, a recent uh, graduate of uh, Environment and Development from King's College. Um, from which college? King's College. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Now that the Environment Secretary of the UK has uh, proposed the GDP plus set of indicators, so she plans to propose, um, I'd be interested in hearing your view on the TEEB report, the economics of um, uh, environment, ecosystems and biodiversity. I'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Gentlemen, next up. Hello, Rupert Morris. Um, can I ask you, please, um, you've spoken quite a lot about two degrees, three degrees, four degrees. Um, my understanding is that the latest science is suggesting a slightly different perspective in other, uh, and from two aspects. First of all, the Arctic is warming at twice the rate, at least, of the rest of the globe, which is clearly quite serious. And secondly, uh, tipping points. Um, the suggestion that some of these major events which you've spoken of, like the monsoon, like the North Atlantic conveyor, um, like, like, like the, the warming of the uh, tundra in Siberia, could in fact come very much sooner than the, um, than the five degrees, four degrees that you've mentioned. I was wondering if you could comment on that somewhat different perspective. Thank you very much. I can take a third question uh, over here, please. Tim Root, coordinator, Muswell Hill, Friends of the Earth. Um, globally, the Green Movement got very well geared up for Copenhagen, but many people were discouraged by the lack of progress there. And politicians say they're much more likely to introduce radical changes if there's a lot of popular pressure upon them. But mobilizing citizens is pretty hard because they regard politicians as fairly useless and some people are turned off the topic of climate change because it's too scary for them. And I wondered how you would suggest that we could mobilize lots of popular pressure on both governments and business leaders. Um, on indicators, um, I think to have a broad view of um, uh, indicators uh, is, is absolutely basic and I, I hope that uh, by now it's fairly thoroughly recognised. Um, the uh, Millennium Development Goals did indeed take on um, eight important dimensions, only one of them which was measured in uh, income terms, and that was not GDP, it was about overcoming poverty. Uh, I was part of the um, uh, Stiglitz-Sen-Fitusi Commission, which uh, President Sarkozy set up, and we gave a long report which sets out the kind of indicators which we would argue for. Many of them actually stock indicators rather than flow indicators, and many of the stock indicators oriented around measuring risk, uh, which the flow indicators don't, on the whole, don't do, and GDP obviously a flow indicator. So I simply agree with you with that, but I think actually um, GDP has become a bit of an Aunt Sally now because, I mean, much of policy making has indeed moved, moved beyond it, but there's no harm in continuing to remind people that we should. I was on the board of TEEB, you know, the, um, and felt that the work of Pavan Sukhdev and others was absolutely first rate, and uh, so I'm a admirer. Uh, the tipping points. Well, one of the reasons that we, um, following the science, uh, think about two degrees as dangerous is not simply that it's uh, two degrees, but that we recognize that the models that are built on the whole leave out the formal modeling of features which we can guess are important, but are actually quite difficult to quantify and capture formally and the potential collapse of the Amazon 
the potential thawing of the permafrost are examples like that. So it looks more risky uh, than the models actually suggest, not because the modelers are naive, but because they're not quite sure at the moment how to bring those things into the models, even though there's a strong uh, uh, worry that those things are... Um, are important. The two degrees, three degrees, and so on are, you know, a global average near surface uh, temperatures. And you're quite right; there is indeed great variation, and that variation matters, particularly in this case uh, in the Arctic. So I think that far from being alarmist, the kind of probabilistic stories I've been telling actually are probably not worrying enough relative to the kind of extra risks that uh, you're talking about. How do we mobilise action? Um, you may think this is a cop-out. Um, it isn't, uh, because we all have our roles to play. I'm an academic, and I try to analyse policy. I try to do the best I can to analyse policy, draw attention to the risks. I'm not a, I'm not a campaigner. Um, I won't sign letters with more than two or three uh, people involved. Um, I admire many campaigners, um, but I my job is to try to lay out the issues as best I can in a way that's as academically respectable as possible, bearing in mind that um, we are not people who are separated in some hermetic way from the body politic. And I've been deeply involved in the body politic in the, uh, in the World Bank and in the Treasury and in the House of Lords and, and so on. But as an academic, I try to write things to try to understand policy as, I best, as best I can, and policy which takes account of uh, these very serious risks. I, of course, as a human being, hope that that has some input into the way in which people look at policy. I think the deepening of the kind of understanding that we need does depend on better communication from academics, scientists, and social scientists. I do think it depends on better communication and leadership from uh, politicians. I think the media, how many people in the media here tonight? <laughs> not, not so many, we scared them off uh, before. Uh, they have a major role to play as well in setting out these issues with uh, real seriousness. It's possible to do that, um, but it's not often uh, done. So I think everybody has their part uh, to play, in, including uh, campaigners. But um, just as Brian Hoskins here writes his papers on the science and in the knowledge that they're going to be used, and thinking about when we write them how they might be used, as we should, we do that in the social sciences as well. So we have to think how it feeds in, how the stuff will be used. We have to write in a way that's as helpful as possible to public discussion, but that's different from being a campaigner. I think Friends of the Earth do quite a good job actually as a as an individual citizen, but that's not that's not my role. Question at the back. Hi there, Jonathan Colmer, PhD candidate at the Grant Institute and Stickard here at LSE. Um, what in the, in the realm of international cooperation, what can we learn from international trade agreements and what scope might there be for regional climate agreements in the future? Lady there. We'll take some questions from the upper galleries. 
Thank you. I'm Katerina Kamali, doing an MSc in Environmental Economics and Climate Change here. And I have two interrelated questions. Uh, I'm afraid I have to insist on one, I'm afraid. Oh, they're very interrelated. <laughs> okay. Then, um, in your experience, particularly your recent experience at Durban, which other countries do, and perhaps companies and individuals that you think will be the key players in forming a global agreement in the next five years? And the gentleman in the blue shirt over there. Hi, uh, Nick Bell. Um, not sure what I do these days. Uh, former consultant on sustainable business, uh, environmentally work kind of person. Um, given that, uh, I, I mean, I personally believe that business have a crucial role in, in transforming the economy um, with or without government help. Um, but whenever um, business groups speak to government, it, it's normally about providing stability and a clear certainty of where government is going, which goes against disruptive change, and yet disruptive change is what we need to meet our low carbon uh, budgets and targets. How, how, do, how do you see government squaring the need for stability against uncertainty against disruptive change? So, lessons from international trade. Um, well, one of the lessons is the um, try to construct things so that the power of vested interests are not too strong. And I think the way we do WTO, on the whole, does give a great weight to vested interests, because there is no agreement in the WTO until every dot and comma is tied up. And that means that uh, those who are trying to push against change can actually be quite effective because it just takes one to stop things uh, happening. So I think there's a warning in the way, so I can't, now lost the person who asked the question, I'd like to look at you, yeah, thank you. The, um, there are um, lessons in that and I think that the searching after unanimity in international agreements on climate change is a, uh, a burden and a burden that we needn't carry. If the big ones, uh, if the people responsible for 80, 85% of the emissions come to an agreement uh, or an understanding, it doesn't have to be signed in blood and enforced from Mars. I mean, this is something that, as I said, you have to have some kind of confidence in where others are going. So I would say that at some point, understanding amongst the big players will be what really matters and the, um, uh, the WTO model is not a good one for this, and we've seen just how horrendous the delays can be. So I think it's a, it's a bad model, but the reason it's a bad model carries important lessons for um, these kinds of models. It's not so much a regional story. I mean, this is a global story, so I think I would go for the big emitters uh, in terms of the countries that... Uh, have big economies, either because they're particularly rich or because they have a lot of people. And I think that's the way I would do it. Regional agreements on um, adaptation will be important. The conference I was at last, or the, one of the meetings I was at last week in Bihar, was introduced by the, the Prime Minister of Nepal. And what, um, what Nepal does is of enormous importance relative to what happens in Bihar. So those regional agreements uh, on, an, on adaptation are, I think, extremely important, but I think less important on uh, mitigation. Who are the key players? 
Well, it's almost the same answer, really. It's the sorry. Where, where's the lady who asked about the key players? Sorry. It, it's um, it's almost the same answer. Um, it's what really matters is the big emitters, um, because that's highly correlated with being a big economy, and that's highly correlated with being influential. So people do look to uh, China and India in the developing world. They do look to the United States and the EU in the uh, rich world. And those are the biggest ones that, um, that really matter and their leadership uh, counts. But sometimes the coalitions work quite well. The EU had a very strong coalition with the small, small island states and said neither the EU nor the small island states wanted to leave with nothing. And uh, they pushed uh, very strongly. Uh, eventually, India did not want to leave without a, a renewal of the clean development mechanism. And some of us uh, were aware of that, and indeed it wasn't a, wasn't a secret. So I think the big players uh, do matter, but sometimes alliances of big players and smaller players matter too. In this case, in Durban, the alliance between the EU and the small island states uh, did matter. But I would start with um, the big emitters because this is a, a story of the sum of emissions and that's what, uh, that's what really counts. Now clarity and steadiness on policy versus disruptive change in the economy. I think what we need is clarity on policy in order to bring about disruptive change in the uh, economy and I don't see that as a uh, contradiction in any way. Um, Clear signals, you know, a, a floor price uh, for uh, carbon in uh, in Europe, a movement from 20% to 30%, and staying there. Those are the kinds of signals I think which will allow people to make uh, to have the confidence to make the big investments. So I think clear, strong signals are actually not at all contradictory with disruptive change. They're actually the things that can drive the disruptive change and you need people to have long-term confidence in those uh, signals. Things like a super grid, a much better grid, smarter grid could facilitate the kinds of investments we're talking about but in order to make that happen you have to have long-term, you know, you've got to have a 10-20 year program to make those kinds of investments. So I think the big changes actually come about from clear and steady policies but they have to be strong ones. So we're almost out of time, so we'll take a very few last questions. Can you make them very short, please, uh, gentleman in the yellow shirt? Hi, Alex Dragard. I'm an MSc Development Study student at SOAS. Um, you talked about some of the work that was going on in some of the developing countries, um, but I'd like to know um, to what extent do you think some of the current climate change mitigation policies pursued in uh, the rich countries, and um, to what extent they might sort of negatively affect the development prospects in some of the poorer developing countries. Um, and just put the backing glasses there. Matthew Bohol from uh, Department of Energy and Climate Change. Um, given the worries that people have on competitiveness in treating climate change, and um, relating back to one of your slides when you quoted Thomas Edison, where he said, I hope we don't run, over, run out of fossil fuels before we switch on into solar power or something like that. Um, would, it, would it be a good idea to f start framing the arguments to treat climate change in terms of resource scarcity? Um, 
patient gentleman at the front. Thank you. Uh, Arjun, a student uh, at the LSE. Uh, my question relates to environmental education. Uh, having discussed um, improvement in communication and uh, uh, the need to improve environmental awareness, um, what policy regime do you think would improve the level of environmental education, specifically in the lesser privileged societies of the Indias and the Chinas of the world, so they can understand better international climate uh, negotiations and, um, uh, and what the scientists, social scientists, and the politicians would think? Thank you. Thank you. Um, mitigation policies in rich countries and effects on poor countries. Well, there are examples where things don't look so good. Um, mindless uh, application of um, biofuel inputs could have, an, uh, could have an effect. Much better uh, application of um, biofuel policy could have a positive effect. Um, if you went, for example, for cellulosic ethanol made out of the straw coming from, uh, say, rice and wheat and maize, then actually your biofuels become complementary uh, with food rather than, you know, one stalk, one ear, or in some cases, one stalk, several ears. And uh, these are um, ways in which you can bring, I think, policy into harmony. So there's no necessary contradiction, but it does involve um, careful thought, and the example of biofuels is uh, one of them. Climate change and resource scarcity. I mean, there's far more hydrocarbons in proven reserves um, than could be burnt and still uh, without carbon capture and storage or some other way, which could be burnt and still keep to two degrees. There's a nice paper by Climate Tracker on that uh, a few uh, months ago. The only conclusion is either we learn to uh, use them in a clean way uh, or we don't use them or we don't hold to two degrees. I mean, these are clearly either ors. And I don't think that uh, uh, resource scarcity by itself um, will um, do the trick. I mean, there's just simply more than enough hydrocarbons than necessary to fry the planet, and we're discovering um, more and more. So the only way is to learn to use them much better. And I do think that with a decent price of carbon over time, you're quite likely to see carbon capture and storage in some shape or form uh, to be viable. But it's going to need a quite a strong price of carbon, probably at least $50 a tonne uh, CO2, perhaps more, as time goes by. But that's probably uh, a, a lower bound on, uh, on where it should be. Um, if in the meantime the renewables and nuclear become so strong that uh, they take over completely, then uh, you may not need to have carbon capture and storage, but I don't see that any time soon. So that's something which we really have to, um, really have to face. Environmental education, well, the awareness in the developing world is actually rather better in many ways than uh, the rich world. So I think catching up is not necessarily uh, the way round that um, you, were, you were suggesting. Uh, people who live close to uh, agriculture, who live close to uh, or in poverty, actually have quite a keen awareness of the effect of the environment on themselves. Um, and I do think that uh, the scientists of India and China, in particular countries you mentioned, are actually pretty good on this uh, stuff 
and it is actually getting into education systems and public awareness uh, quite uh, quite well in the Indian political system virtually all the, the uh, parties uh, take a strong interest in that there are not many functional parties in China but the <laughs> Communist Party of the People's Republic is very clear and strong on uh, on this issue different political structures different mechanisms but it is actually quite striking the way in which environmental education and awareness anyway uh, has moved in the developing world well uh, unfortunately we're out of time so I'd just like to thank Nick once more for three fascinating stimulating lectures and uh, Let's show our appreciation in the usual way.